Hello, this is Eric with Dungeons and Tangents. You are tuning in to one of the early episodes of this podcast, so I wanted to make sure you know the quality of these early episodes is inferior to later episodes. I recommend checking out episode 14 or later. It's around that time that we really get our process figured out. If you're listening to this early material, I hope you forgive us for our learning curve, and thank you very much for listening. Welcome to episode five of Dungeons and Tangents. Dungeons and Tangents. We'll get it eventually. Uh, so this episode we're talking about maps. Map. Map. Maps. 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 Map. Maps. I've got some notes. Yeah. Uh, I think we both have the same notes, but yeah, some some maps. We were gonna talk about minis. I love minis. Eric made the excellent point that. It's, we should probably talk about maps beforehand because maps are an integral part of using minis. I love minis. It's in the tabletop experience. So it's not, they're not bound to just minis. There's a lot of different uses for maps in gaming. A lot of people use them. A surprising number of people don't. Uh, I think they add a lot to the experience. The first experience I had with D&D, there was no map. Uh, this is in middle school. The DM describing the situation and us asking questions about okay am i this close to that tree that the monkey's in can i shoot it and him saying yes or no so when you say no map you're referring to a, a map to facilitate a tactical experience yeah yeah right, for that specific encounter um for anything i mean we which is keys directly into what we're talking about those being necessary for the most part for minis i love minis yeah but there's a lot of uses for maps. There, there are. Uh, general area, overland, you know, worldwide geography of whatever world you're playing in to give you the, that, that sense of engagement. And we, we come around to this every single episode, engagement, immersion, interaction with the world that you're trying to build. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And believability. Yes. And giving somebody a feeling like they're aware of how things fit together on a grand scale. Uh, goes a long way towards establishing that shared narrative yeah. uh, with that entire group. And I remember feeling it was jarring to begin with, with that, that first game. I mean, it was jarring because of the first time I played D&D, but it was jarring to have to experience something completely within my imagination with a person narrating a description of the town that we were in, and then the trail we were on, and then the forest we were in and then the cave we were in and so he had to describe all of it and I I mean I remember it now and I have a very clear picture in my mind of it but if he had had a map I feel like it would have been uh, a very quick just you're here on the map. My first introduction to, to Dungeons and Dragons uh, there were overall overland geography maps right but no like encounter maps, no minis, nothing like that. It was all described. And I, I had a thoroughly enjoyable experience. Hooked me for life. But it wasn't until I moved and as an adult so I reached out and started playing again that I was introduced to playing with minis and, and a map and, and really dialing in that tactical experience of and not wanting to say that Dungeons Dragons is all about you know encounters and battle and, and <laughs> tactics and all that, but it can be a very significant part of it. Um, don't want to get away from the role play and all that, but um, you can play the whole game without having that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you could, like, fourth edition. 
Oh, it's it was very, fourth? very high, highly okay. dependent on that kind of encounter mechanic. But uh, third, you could fifth, you can. Uh, yeah. First and second, you definitely can. It was my all my experiences, first and second edition were, were without those kinds of maps. But almost all pre-written modules, all those for for the DM have maps that may or may not surface right. to the players. I thought it was very interesting in my experiences before using maps, trying to establish that, like I said, that shared kind of narrative, that shared immersion into your world. I'm trying to say it without saying shared hallucination, but it's almost what it is. Of like, <laughs> you're, you're all trying to imagine the same thing, describing something, having five people playing, but they all imagine something slightly or wildly different. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you, you can't really anticipate or plan for how that might shake out. And yet, strangely, every game of D&D I've played there hasn't been an imagination of the world that's been so wildly different that it's caused issues. Well, I can't say that. There have been times when it's caused there, small issues, but it's rare. been times for me where I've had to clarify. Yeah. And then kind of do a, a course correction on, on somebody's imagination, which always feels very weird yeah. to me. Yeah. Because I don't want to tell somebody they imagine something wrong, uh, but at the same time, they imagine it wrong. Right. So. <laughs> well, okay. I'm going to step back a little. Maps have been a part of my life forever. Some of the first memories I have are of traveling. I, I grew up traveling a lot because my dad worked in construction. He would go from job to job. I lived in um, 10 different locations by the time I was 10 years old, which meant a lot of driving from place to place. And my mom would hand me the map, uh, the Rand McNally's mm -hmm. map, and I would follow along. For me, it seems like a very natural thing. If you want to describe a situation to somebody, you want to know where they are, where they're going, and those are like the first two things in my mind. Reading Tolkien, I love the fact that he describes situations almost always in relation to a map. Having an actual map in The Hobbit helps me as a reader understand the situation that's happening. And when I first read The Hobbit, I, was, I would flip back to the map all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's, the, it's that same thing in D&D. As a DM, I have the maps to figure out the situation in order to communicate to the players the situation. As a player, I love being able to have a map to orient myself and constantly be aware of that's north, the ruins are over there, the road's over there, I'm in the middle of the forest. I got the, uh, the Yawning Portal, mm -hmm. uh, which is a set of uh, six or seven dungeons, and there are maps in there. And those maps are meant for me, the DM. They're not meant for the players. The images of those maps have spoilers. Yeah. And so they, they can't be exposed to the players or else it'll just ruin the experience. And I find that fascinating that there's a whole set of information that's just for the DM. Um, and specifically maps. Theoretically, you could, you could build maps that are just, here are the maps that, that the players should play on and then have a bunch of notes in the background that say, by the way, there's a trap in this room. There's a there's a secret passage here to yeah. there. Um, I've done this before. It's a little embarrassing where you're looking at it and you draw it and you just want to think of it. You start drawing the secret stuff on the map. <laughs> oh, shit. You start erasing it. Um, but ideally, you would have that documentation with yours and you'd have a second set. It may not always be feasible, but I think it's very feasible and very reasonable that you'd have a second set and a some kind of a digital distribution on a website or something that you can go yeah. and download and then print out or use separately as a reference, distribute to your players like a handout. And so yeah, there, there, there's a lot of different ways to kind of slice 
maps, the functionality, purpose, and all that, one of them being DM versus player. Yeah. Right? For me, the, the main difference is functional versus kind of inspirational. A tactical map is there to kind of sync everybody up. Everybody yeah. knows what's going on, you're on the same page, and you can then plan accordingly knowing that everybody has the same information. Right? Kind of a one source of truth as far as what the encounter is and yeah. you know the different dimensions. Again, very doable without it. But what it adds to, for me, what I think what it adds to an experience, it adds a little bit of immersion, it adds some engagement, but it adds mostly the big value add there is the cohesiveness of everybody's understanding True. for that True. encounter. An overland map of, let's say, Forgotten Realms, right? Yeah. Uh, of, um, I used to have one, I had it framed. From oh, really? Edition, yeah, from the third edition uh, Forgotten Realms source book. Uh, it, it came with this fold-out map in the back, and it, you know, like yay big, and had all this information on it, uh, and it was great, and I loved it, and it was nice to be able to look at that, and again, say read a modules, reference some points, and say, oh wait, that's right here, that's here, that's how that works. But for me, those kinds of maps are inspirational. Sounds kind of corny, but I look at those, and I immediately start to imagine what's going on here. What's happening here? How do these two points, these two towns relate to each other, right? Why is it that there's everything over here is populated and it's barren over here? You know, or you get to the edges and, and you know, here be dragons. That immediately <laughs> makes you start thinking about all the stuff that could be there, right? Like, it's a jumping off point and it immediately just, it's a catalyst for imagination. For me, that's, the, that's why I love maps. I, I think maps are great tactically, but for an overall experience of getting people to think about what is there, Forgotten Realms has an established map, uh, and you can go find that established map, and it has all of the towns that have been in stories and modules for decades. You can find multiple versions that with crazy amounts of detail. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I have a version uh, that on computer would be that big. Yeah. It's the equivalent of, like, Africa in size. So often, there will be places in modules or in games I've run that are not on the map. Like, mm-hmm. the first the first time I ran as a DM, I was like, I don't want to build my own world. I'll just use the existing Forgotten Realms world. But I don't want to use their, their cities. I'm going to put my own right there. And I'm going to put another one right there and change the map. And I think everybody probably does that. The Mines of Fandelver that you ran, Fandelver wasn't on the map. I don't think it was in a step, was it? I think it was. I think, oh, I, think I found other okay. maps where you could find it. Okay. It, d- it depends on the map you're looking at. It depends on how um, detailed it is, and it depends okay. on the content it's focusing on. That's fair. Um, because a lot of it will focus... Like, if you're looking at a map that's very centric to the, the Sword Coast, or is really focusing on the Moonshade books, or any of the R.A. Salvatore books with, you know, Drizzt and all that, you're, you're gonna... It's gonna focus on some very specific points of the geography, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but like from the minds of Fandelver, there were a couple towns I was con- I, I was absolutely convinced they were put there for that module and just made up on the spot. And I actually found twenty year old maps that referred to those towns. <laughs> I was I was blown away. Uh, there's so much content there. There is a uh, uh, you know so much so that you can't they can't use it all. And right. So just because you don't hear about it doesn't mean it's not there. And so but they have the option of just kind of. You know, it's reaching in the back pocket and pulling out, bam, I have all this stuff. It's like, well, there's no way you had that. You made it up. <laughs> Dude, it's been sitting there for 30 years now. There's a book that is uh, The Forgotten Realms Atlas. Is that? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the Forgotten Realms Atlas, uh, I want to say Marianne Winstead. That sounds that? familiar. Um, she did the Forgotten Realms Atlas, the Dragonlance Atlas, and she actually did uh, one from Middle-earth as well. Oh, holy smokes. And they're really cool because they're not just like... They're, uh, there's, there's sort of not atlases of locations. If you read through them, they're a brief overview of locations in Pokemon regions, but they map out the journeys made by people from books. Oh, okay. So, like, the, the middle of ones, you know, maps out Lord of, uh, Lord of the Rings books and Hobbit and... Cimmerillion? Actually, I'm assuming that. I don't know that. I haven't read that one. I've got it, but I haven't read it. But the Dragonlance ones and the Forgotten Realms ones, uh, the Dragonlance ones very straightforward and that it goes through a lot of stuff that you read through in the main setting. But the Forgotten Realms one touches on the Moonshade books, the, the Driz books, some of the, the Spellfire books. And to have like those books that you read and you imagine in your head and then have somebody else have actually gone through the, the trouble of making all these maps. Somebody who I believe was an actual legitimate cartographer yeah, made okay. these really cool maps and then mapped out like these little trail markers of like where they went and this was where they camped <laughs> in this one book and all that and then annotated like what everything meant. Um, those are very cool books to kind of sit there and read, especially if you've read those. those I books. have read two thirds of one of those books. Mm-hmm. When I was in middle school, I read I think the first of the Dragonlance books, mm-hmm. and I got a little bit through it. And I was like, "This is boring me to death." <laughs> I, but I'm easily bored by books. I, I, I read those, and I just that was it. I couldn't put them down. I, I just I burned through those as fast as I could. There's a whole set of backstories and history that have been established by books and campaigns and more books and more campaigns, um, officially published things. Me as a, a, as a DM, I didn't know most of that stuff. I, like I said, I read two-thirds of one of the Dragonlance books. I played a bunch of gold box games mm-hmm. in the early 90s that were all in Kryn, which was a completely different world than the Forgotten Realms. So the first time I sat down to be a DM... I'd been exposed to a couple of video games that were in Forgotten Realms. It was like, I'll, I'll pick some locations that are near the places I remember. Right. That was it. But I'm not beholden as a DM to keep up that. Absolutely not. The, and that's, the consistency of, of that. That's an incredibly valuable lesson. That, that, <laughs> that I, I accidentally fell into. Right. I, I, I felt this obligation. We talked about it a couple episodes ago about not wanting to create content for your DM as a player because you feel like you're then modifying their world. Running a game in the Forgotten Realms, like, well, Ed Greenwood did it a certain way, so I'm not going to do it because this is his work. No, it's my game. Right. I'm, I'm leveraging his content. That's great. And he did a great job of building a world, but I'm the one playing it and running it for my players. And um, I will apologize profusely uh, for modifying it if he happens to show up at my game <laughs> right <laughs> on the off chance that happens I order pizza and he's the one who brings it to the door otherwise I'm going to do whatever the hell I want right, right. I'm the one running it what's important is we have fun and, and I, I'm pretty sure that he's not going to take offense right it's the whole yeah. point of that I think if I had run a game in Middle Earth I would have felt very obligated to get everything right because I know that world significantly better than I know mm-hmm. Forgotten Realms but my first time as a DM, I was just like, I don't know, there are orcs and goblins and shit. Let's let's have a game. <laughs> and, and when you can just get to the point where you're comfortable being like orcs, goblins and shit, go. You, you, and let's let go of all of the other apprehensions. Like, I get this perfect, or I need to do that just right, or uh, people are going to know that this is how isn't how it went. 
well, no shit, it's not Halloween. We're playing a game in a fictional universe. It's, it goes however you say it goes. None of it's going to be historically accurate. We're here to have fun, exercise our imaginations, and, and, and interact. Um, it's I, not homework. I think the first time I was exposed to D&D, or the early times when I was exposed to D&D, I saw the amount of work that whoever had put together the content had mm-hmm. put into it, and it made it intimidating. It intimidates to me to this day. <laughs> Terribly. But for some reason, uh, a year and a half ago when I decided, ah, I'm going to DM, it, that was the least intimidating thing to me. The most really? intimidating thing to me was, oh, God, are people going to have fun? Yeah. Uh, is, are people going to show up for the second session? Or are, they gonna, are we going to build characters and they're going to be like, oh, God, I hate you now? <laughs> but you started playing. You started running a game and... You had to start turning people away the door. So yeah. many people were, yeah. were, were trying to get into that game. Yeah, and uh, that worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that has nothing to do with maps. It's okay. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> On the subject of maps... <laughs> yes. Uh, battle mats. I had not seen a battle mat until you started running Fandelver. So a battle mat for anybody who hasn't seen one, is just a vinyl mat with a grid on it. That's it. Usually one side is squares and one side is hexes, because some people like to play hexes. Mm -hmm. I ran into somebody at a game store once who actually worked on the California Raisins. Like, he got into painting minis so much that he made a career of it and was painting claymation Mm -hmm. uh, as his profession, which is... um, the guy who invented the California Raisins and ran that used to uh, have a studio out outside of Portland. This guy talked about having no map uh, when he would play with his dad and his brothers. And then he got a little bit older, uh, and they they were, like, getting in fights about who was standing where. And mm-hmm. that's when they finally broke down and got a battle mat, and he started getting minis, and he started painting minis, obviously. And that was like the, the a big leap forward for him. And was was it the same for you? It changed the game fundamentally for me. Um, I enjoyed the storytelling aspect of, it, of, of the encounters. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it was kind of, it felt like playing fast and loose with the rules and that mm. when, as soon as you got into third with uh, reach, flanking bonuses, attacks of opportunity, five foot steps versus a full move and like that it, it, you, you can't enforce that without a map or you can but you'd have to remember the, the DM would have to be very good at describing it's you, and you can if you're one of those people who can play chess in their head right I'm not one of those people right I I can half do that but yeah. um, <laughs> I wouldn't I, I don't want to try I don't want to waste my effort on that I can't keep a grocery list in my head <laughs> so I, and I'll, you don't have to we have paper and indeed. we have phones it is a different game. It's a, it's a different way of playing it. It's the same game. It's a different way of, of experiencing it, I guess. Uh, I, I think both are incredibly fun. One is a lot more convenient if you don't have a lot of space. One oh, is a, one a lot more convenient if you have the space and you have the resources, right? Uh, minis, it's really hard to have this topic without starting to really get into minis, which we're not <laughs> going to do because we wanted to have that topic. But you, you, you don't have to have minis. You have bottle caps and... And, and coins like I've heard people use uh, M&M's or Skittles for enemies so, right. if, so if you kill kill one you get to eat it if, yeah if you're not 
wouldn't work for me because I, I, I would just eat everything without thinking about it. So when, when there's a battle mat, usually it's a, like a, a wet erase mat. Mm-hmm. Though I've seen people just put plexiglass down over like a pre-printed mat. When I was still living on my own and I had a whole lot of money, uh, but foolishly Home Depot issued me a Home Depot credit card. <laughs> I, I got it in my head that I was going to build a game table. Oh, okay. And you, if you can Google game tables, they're, they're beautiful, you know, pieces of furniture, gorgeous, well crafted, all that. This is not what I made. Oh, you actually made some. Oh, I, I, what I made was I got a fold-out utility table. Wasn't a lot of credit limit on this credit card, you know. Uh, it just it's folds in half. You fold it oh, out, okay. lock nice. it. Right, it's plastic. I took uh, a ruler and I just did a, a grid oh. across the whole thing. Yeah. And then I got this plexi glass material from there, sanded it, I cut it with a, a Dremel, so it went over the grid, and then I uh, screwed it down into the table, so it didn't move. Okay. So you, you could draw on the plexiglass all you wanted, right? Um, but the the grid was always there, and then you could just wipe it down, and, and everything be fine. Um, and Sounds like a... Fold it down, and you put it away, and, and it's... Both great and away. horrible idea. And so it was great, as long as you didn't move around too much uh, so it's you know there's one of those kind of plastic high density plastic utility tables yeah but it's all hollow on the inside yep so there was like maybe an eighth of an inch of actual plastic for the screws to bite into so the, the screws would pop out and then you have the, the plastic glass like you know <laughs> all over the place and it, it wasn't super durable right right I, I took it to places when we would go somewhere else and play and then you fold it out it, I mean it worked really well for what it was and how little it cost me but the battle mat. The battle mat is really the, tried and true. I'd love yeah. to take credit for the battle mats. They've been around forever. <laughs> I keep them in my trunk. You know, there's no reason like to, to put it inside because you're always going to need one. It takes up almost no space. Yeah. You put it in one of those folio tubes, and it's always just ready to go. Mine's in a stainless steel fishing rod tube. <laughs> and you shove some markers in there with the tube with the mat. Oh yeah. And you just you're ready. With a battle mat, normally you don't roll it out and have the map map already drawn. No, you might have the map from the last game <laughs> accidentally, which isn't great. Yeah, that stuff. Uh, yeah, if you leave something on one of those mats, it'll stain your map. Yeah, I really love maps, and I want to do them right. And when I'm in the middle of a game, and I need to draw something, I'm not going to draw it with the detail that I would want mm-hmm. to draw it. So I always battle between am I going to just bring the map the, or the mat mm-hmm. bring the battle mat and draw it during the game or am I going to pre-draw something and bring it more often than not it's just impractical um, either mechanically in the game or with my time to, to pre-draw a bunch of stuff but I love pre-drawing because then it's very detailed it's far more immersive mm-hmm. than this square which is not really a square because I just drew it and Ten, like a tenth of a second that's a house and here's another house and here's a here's a tree and you know I'm drawing as fast as I can to get the drawing over with so we can start playing and more often than not I I don't like that that trade-off of having to draw during the game I've done both I actually got these uh, which I thought was an amazing idea and I never used them it just didn't turn out to, to work out well these like jigsaw pieces. I've seen those that are. I haven't tried. What a race that you can just you can pre-draw everything on, but then you just lay them out as you explore things, right? One of the main drawbacks to pre-drawing things 
um, is ironically enough that it's pre-drawn. Right. And so, if, you know, you immediately get a scope of what's involved, like if you have a dungeon, yep. as opposed to if you draw as you go, players don't really, like, this This could be three rooms, this could be, you know, a four battle mat dungeon, like, they don't know, right? Yeah. If you just roll it out there and everything's already drawn, even if you, it's not filled in, they immediately know kind of the scope of what, what's going on here, yeah. right? The alternative that I came up with was the idea of I pre-drew just individual rooms. Now, in, in this particular campaign, it was a, a fortress, a magical fortress where the rooms move around. So part of the, the function of these pre-drawn rooms was I could put one down, you could explore it, you could go through a door, and then that room you just left disappears and a different one shows up behind you. I went and bought big pieces of kind of butcher paper that have... Uh, grids on them, mm-hmm. and I drew rooms, and I laminated them so I can draw on them. It's a lot of effort, but it means in the moment of the game, when you guys walk through a door, I just pull out a room and I put it down, and you're in the room. But that's very well lent itself to the specific mechanic of that location as well. It did. Um, I mean, you, I don't think you could have done that location any other way. No, no. But that would have been insane to do it otherwise. You have to redraw it constantly, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that that would work for every dungeon. Because some dungeons you're going to walk into a room and the DM's just going to draw half of it because you can only see halfway through mm-hmm. the room. I've struggled with that a lot. Cause I, I, mean, I got the, the jigsaw pieces because I was like, I, I want to pre-draw things. I don't want to give everything away. But I don't want to draw on the spot because, I, you know, like you, I'm a perfectionist. Unlike you, I can't draw for life. I mean, like, <laughs> um, you can just... I've, I can. Your maps are fantastic. And I, I can barely draw a straight line. <laughs> Uh, the squares help on the battle. <laughs> right. Squares help a lot. It's amazing. It, it, it You can do it terribly, and it still comes out pretty well. Yeah. The finished product still looks like a map, right? Uh, it doesn't even look perfect. It's not um, poured concrete, right? So it wouldn't, like, your walls wouldn't have been perfectly straight, you know, in the setting anyway. But it, it looks like a hand-drawn map, which amazingly lends itself to that experience even That's more. That's true. You know? That's true. It, it, it's not like a printed you know, drafted architectural AutoCAD thing, it it looks like somebody hand drew that map. You kind of have to accept in D&D that everything you're doing is a representation of the imagination mm-hmm. of, of what you want to imagine. The map being imperfect, that's fine. The miniatures being imperfect, that's fine. So long as everybody's has a, a shared enough experience. I will probably lean toward pre-drawn as often as I possibly can because I want to speed up. I, I want to reduce the amount of time that people are waiting around for me as a DM. Uh, in, in my experience, that little break, that five-minute break of going out and a small mm-hmm. break, grab a snack, go in the bathroom, uh, it lets me draw what I need to draw. That's true. And then when people come back, they're a little more focused because they've, they've kind of, you know, they got to stretch their legs. They got to, you know, if Savannah's sitting there with her e-cig, for an hour, um, <laughs> she wants a break. She wants five minutes. And that's that, fair. And if we don't break, she, that, that's what she's going to be thinking about, not the encounter and all that, right? Yeah. You know? So she's going to go out and then come back and she's refocused again, right? Re-energized. Full of nicotine, essentially. Right? <laughs> um, I watch Critical Role periodically. They do very few breaks. They do like one break in a three-hour session. And... Matt Mercer does a shit job of drawing. Like he is one of the <laughs> worst map drawers I've ever seen. Like he has all the time he needs 
beforehand usually to pre-draw stuff, and he'll just bring out a, a, a piece of butcher paper with squiggles on it that I can just barely make out. Oh, that's another thing too. If you do like to pre-draw it, and you don't want to draw on your <clears throat> battle mat and stain it, etc., you can get big pieces of, of gridded butcher paper. So that, that is an option too. It is. Uh, I had a friend who had one, and they're moving. Like, do you want this? It's like, yes. I will, <laughs> I will use the crap out of that. Cheap. Never once used it. Oh. <laughs> uh, that's what I used to make the the laminate the, tiles. Yeah, the laminated uh, fortress tiles. Mm -hmm. The next campaign I'm running, I'm I'm thinking I will probably use that because it's a dungeon that you probably go in and out of, in and out of constantly. I don't want to have to redraw the entire thing. Yeah. I can just draw it and still have it for the next game. And, and also, there will be locations that you want to have a map for that don't necessarily need to have a mystery. Yeah. So yeah. if you want to have a map for a town. Or a tavern that There shouldn't be a fog of war to. for a town. Right. right? <laughs> Unless like things are really going to go south really yeah. quick. Like, uh, or a tavern is a great example, right? It's something where it's perfectly appropriate for you to walk in and immediately have an idea of what the scope of what you're doing is. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the times when it is appropriate tavern, town, things like that, it's also, there's a correlation of you're more likely to revisit that place. That's so true. it's nice to have that. You can just you know break out over and over and over again. I was reading an old module, well, the original Sunless Citadel module, and they have an image of the town, but they don't have a, what I would call a map of the town. A key? or uh, it, It's like a perspective drawing oh, of yes. the town. Mm. And it points out, you know, here's the town hall, here's the tavern, here's the blacksmith. Uh, but it's like a look down the street, and you can see all the buildings. Mm -hmm. Because it's it doesn't need to be a tactical map, there's not going to be any battles, you don't really need to know who's where in the city at any one time. So it just being a, well, you called it an inspirational image, it gives whoever's looking at that just a, an idea of the setting. I remember hearing something. I don't know if it's a quote or not, but it, I thought it was really interesting. It resonated with me. It made me feel really bad for artists, actually. The idea that the less you understand of an artist's work, the more you can appreciate it. Everybody knows uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night is, is a big one for me. I look at that and I just start imagining people living in those little houses, mm -hmm. all those little lights, you know, in that town. Like, what's happening there? Is there somebody getting mugged in an alleyway, you know, <laughs> or drinking too much in a, in a tavern? I, just, I look at that and that is a, just a prime example of gaming inspiration to me, right? Another one is Fantasia. Yeah. Is it the, the Night on Demon Mountain or something like that? Uh, night on Bald Mountain. Um, okay. Uh, the music. Oh, the, that is... the artist, the artistry or the imagery of, you know, coming up from the mountain and there's that town underneath, like, resonates the exact same way as Star Handles, but it's just a gaming gold mine of, like, you could just start pulling stories out of that left and right to, to run a game off of. But I didn't draw those. I didn't animate those. That's true. The idea being <clears throat> that the less you understand of what's involved in somebody's art, the more you can appreciate it. If I had drawn Starry Night, I wouldn't look at a light or one of those little golden blobs and say, that's uh, somebody's house. They're settling in, they're having dinner, you know, blissfully unaware of an orc raid coming into town, right? <laughs> I'd be like, this was the color of paint that I used on this kind of canvas. Right. It would be very mechanical. Yes. I would know what was involved. I would know the workings underneath. I would, it would be math almost, like just uh, the component parts yeah. and not I, the sum. I, I have experienced that from the artist's point of view. I've... Uh, 
used to be a musician. I guess I still play instruments. I still play. Instruments. I, still, I still play. He does our intro music. But the stuff that I was really passionate about that I did musically, it's the same thing. But when I listen to music that I've recorded, I hear the decision making that I made. I hear instrument I made, the, the mixing choices I made, the room I was in. I hear the me mechanics of how it happened. And I don't hear the story behind right, exactly. it or the, ins the, the things that it inspires me to think of when it, it hopefully evokes some sort of emotion. It doesn't evoke emotions in me because it's a mechanical experience for me as, as a musician. The more holes there are for you to fill in with your imagination, yeah. the, the more it engages you, right? Van Gogh knows there's not a family behind that light. Right, he knows right. there's a canvas behind that. But I, I, I look at it, I don't think about what was involved in painting it, I don't think about the mechanics, I think about the journey it takes me on, right? So that, someone said about that map of that town, Yeah. it shows you four or five points, right? But you can see a picture of the town, so you see those houses that aren't labeled, and you, you, <laughs> your brain automatically starts thinking of like, well, who lives there? Is that a little, you know, you just start filling in these gaps, and your imagination takes over, uh, and it's... It, it, they could absolutely map everything out and define everything for you, which yeah. would immediately take away some of that experience, right? Which actually, that comes back to the whole big map of, of Faerun, the, the Forgotten Realms world. When I look at it, I think, well, between Baldur's Gate and um, whatever the place is south of Baldur's Gate, there's got to be like outposts, things mm -hmm. happening between here and here. And there's a mountain range here. How many caves are there? How many tunnels? How many uh, dwarven mines? Trade caravans. Yeah, it's... All it's, kinds of things. I feel like there's a quote somewhere in there. The interesting things on a map are the things between the, the dots. You know what's happening in those cities. You don't know what's happening between the cities. But I think that's, that's the absolute true value of, of those bigger maps, of some of the art in there, right? Um, and even those, those smaller maps, like you said, of that town, like there's value in not mapping everything out. When everything is defined and everything's determined, it's just a story. Yeah. It's not yeah. interactive anymore, Yeah. right? Part of the experience is filling in those gaps, either with your imagination, something that's unsaid, or filling in parts of the story with how it unfolds with the party's actions, right? Like, there have to be voids that you can fill for it to be fun, right? Or you can just go see a movie. Right. You know? Um, the interactive part of it is, is filling in those gaps and making it your own, um, which is what I love about maps, about the, the, the game overall. Just And even when I'm creating my, my character, I'll spend hours creating a character. That whole character is just math. It's, it's a representation. Yeah. It's a result of a bunch of math, a bunch of concepts put together. But I'm thinking of a backstory. I'm thinking of why do they know this? Why do they have these abilities? Why don't they have those abilities? When you're building a character, you are trying to fill the gaps with consistency. Okay, yeah. When, when you look at a, at a Starry Night, you're trying to fill the, the gaps in your knowledge with consistent, mm -hmm. interesting stories. And when you look at that map of, of the town Oakhurst in Sunless Citadel, you're thinking, I bet there are people consistent with what I see, but more depth than is there. Mm -hmm. And if something happens that runs against the grain of that consistency, it's gonna take you out of the experience pretty fast. Yes. Whether it's um, you're walking across 
what looks like a blank part of the map, and the DM says, you come across a giant castle that's in the middle of the road. Well, no, I, I can't. Otherwise, it would be on the map. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that would be an interesting mystery. Why is there a giant castle? That's an inconsistency that could be an interesting story. But for the most part, inconsistencies, they rub against the grain, and you, you want to... Or investigate them. if you were going down a, a trail, you know, frequented by some trade caravans, um, you're on your horse, there's a wagon, you're seeing some other traders, some other merchants, um, and then up comes a suburban, a Chevy suburban. <laughs> you're done. You're right. You're done. Well, right? and there's a scene in Braveheart where Mel Gibson is leading the charge, you know, as William Wallace, bunch of horses, painted up, swords, you know, just very in the moment. And in the background, you can see a car drive by on a road. <laughs> Not shooting you. Blatant white cars drives by in the background. And they didn't catch it. Went into the movie. Went into, it's, you get the DVD now. You can see that scene. You see a car drive by in the background of that I've, scene. I mean, I've seen the movie multiple times, and I've never noticed that. But Not, now I know it's there. That scene is just completely just ruined for me, right? <laughs> right. You can't believe that. No, no, you, you... Look, it's, it's William Wallace. No, no, it's Mel Gibson LARPing because there's a car in the background. <laughs> it's his mom picking him up after the RPG. Um, it's, it's a completely different experience at that point, right? Like, if you see a movie that you love, like, like let's say, like a Harry Potter movie or something like that, something that's very fantastic, oh. and then you see the, how they do the effects, it, for me, ruins those, those scenes. I have... Uh, I won't watch them. One of my ex-bosses, um, he had kids, and his wife would not let his children watch behind the scenes because it ruins yeah it's, it ruins the movies for him and, and why would you want to because your kids see that and they, it, it's magic to them right yeah it, it's magic it's magic to adults let's just be honest like you see it and you get that wonderment that imagination and that is as close as we're ever going to get to magic right like it's something that it defies explanation or definition that kind of um, hits on something huge, which is storytelling is the closest we can get to magic. Mm -hmm. And whether it's through a movie or a book or a shared narrative like D&D, that's the closest we're going to get to a magical experience. It's kind of kind of sappy, but... (laughs) And and to just be literal about it, like, when I was a kid, my mom took me to the Holt Center Eugene, and we saw... Uh, magician, I forget who it was, by David Copperfield or something. Oh, right. And there was this whole two-hour thing of just magic tricks, right? Magic, but presented in a way, took you on a journey, had a narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Personally, I love the entire you know, premise of a magic trick. I'm telling you in this moment, I'm going to lie to you. I'm right. lying to you right now, probably, right? Like, in the way that I'm moving, my actions, all that. And yet, I'm still going to get you to trust me. Because if you don't trust me, I can't trick you. Then right? you must hate Penn and Teller. Uh, I love Penn and Teller. Oh, really? I do. They, right? they all, like almost every one of their shows, they do the behind the scenes. Well, I don't watch it. Okay. The worst, most violent thing that you can do to me in that moment is tell me how it's done. I don't want how it's done. And that's, and. I want to wonder. If you go see Penn and Teller, that's exactly what they do. Right? They'll, they'll do the whole trick. They'll like turn the entire stage around mm-hmm. and you get to watch it from the back. Right, <laughs> and, and it's it's a lot of times it's perspective or misdirection and all that, but you just let me wonder. I mean, let me fill in the gaps on my own, and maybe I'll figure I, it out. I think I figured it out, but I am I clearly a, I'm clearly a different person than you, because when I watch oh, a magic no. trip, I am 
my brain just immediately tries to figure it out. Oh, mine too. Oh, okay. Mine too. Um, and there are some that I can figure out. And those are the ones I don't really enjoy. That's the fair. The ones That's where fair. I can't figure it out, those are oh, the ones I love. Oh, those drive me nuts. I love them. Oh, those are the ones that I'm like, oh, I'll be thinking, I, I, I have I'll to think figure this out. Days, right? But the second, the second you tell me how it's done... It blew my brain. I couldn't care less. Well, that's true. That's true. It's a closed book experience. It's no longer um, a mystery. It's no longer has value to me. Yeah. The vast majority of Chris Angel's stuff, I, for whatever reason, I already knew most of his tricks before I saw them. So when I saw his stuff, I was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> I, I just, I can't, I can't get past the fact that he looks like a complete asshole. <laughs> Somehow this has something to do with maps. Matt, yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, fill in the, well, the voids, the, the, yeah. the wonder and imagination of what is there. Which actually kind of touches on the, the fact that maps serve different, very different functions. You brought this up at the very beginning. A tactical map should have no wonderment in it. It should be very straightforward and and open. Well, it can. It can. But that's not its purpose. No, yeah, its purpose. Its purpose is to have alignment. Yeah. So everybody's on the same page, right? Everybody knows what's happening. This person's here. This monster's there. This other person's here. That's it. When, I, when I'm a DM, I, I think of maps in three stages. One is world map, where I'm going to show you this is a city, and it's just a dot on the map. And here's another city, and it's a dot on the map, and there are lines between dots on the map. The next stage down is the city size, and it's going to have... A city and it's gonna have buildings you're gonna be able to see most of the buildings uh, from from a top view as if somebody had drawn a picture of or the closest thing they got to what that city looks like and then the next stage down is tactical I, I very much think of it as those three three levels and if if there's wonderment at the the world level that's great there should be if there's wonderment at the city level that's good too because that city should should be uh, dark alleys and and um, you know people's offices and, and and people lots of people living their lives. At the tactical level, it should be you know exactly what's going on right at this moment in this place because that's the purpose of that map. But usually, you've rolled initiative by that point. We're talking about six second increments of time on a very well known, well established grid, and it. It's a little bit jarring just that D&D does that. It goes from grand sweeping vistas of people traveling for days and days to suddenly we're talking about six seconds. But like a good, like a good map, a good story, all of that, it shouldn't be limited to mystifying and sparking the imagination of its players. Because it should spark the imagination of the person running the game, too. Give them ideas to how to flesh the story. Give them ideas oh, for yeah. the next game. Give them ideas to how to tweak an encounter. It's very easy to fall into things being mechanical when you run a game. Yeah. Which is not the wrong yeah. way to do it, because it's not, I'm not saying it's the wrong way to do it, but it's, it's unfortunate. It's much, it, can, it can be much more difficult to stay engaged, interested, and be imaginative and have that sense of wonderment when you run a game, because you know so many of the, the, you know, the ins and outs and the details that the players don't know. Yeah. But if you can maintain that, you can go a lot longer without burning out. You can maintain that for your players a lot longer. Um, you can get a lot more enjoyment out of it as a DM. I'm not going to say it's common, but it can be very easy to get to the point where you just feel like 
you don't get to play. Right. You're not playing. You're running the game, right? You're, yeah. If I'm just can, the computer who's who's right. making sure that the rules are being followed. If you can run a game and still get maintain that experience, like it feels like you're playing the game too, you're gonna have a lot more fun. Your players have more fun. You'll get a lot more out of it. You know, I'm a gonna thing. the next game that I'm gonna run is gonna be just a small set of people, and it's gonna be a pre-existing campaign. I'm gonna run Sun of the Citadel. And I've never done that before. I've never run a pre-existing one. I'm a little bit worried that it'll get mechanical for me. Mm-hmm. Because some of the wonderment that I get out of doing D&D is making up stories. Making yeah. up all sorts of stuff. And this is this is like a 20 or 30 page module where it's all written out for me already. I don't have to do anything to run the game. Whereas when I ran uh, the Flex Group... I drew maps. I drew a map of a city that didn't exist before, and in the drawing of that map, I had to um, think about, well, who lives here and who lives here, and why is this part of the city like this, and this part of the city is like this, and this river flows through it, so they must have either uh, trade routes on the river, or they've got fishing going on or something, and what happens outside the walls? Well, maybe there's farmland, because Usually it's an agrarian society that builds something a little more structured. So it's a farming community that grew up and now it's this. And so I had to go through the thought process of being very creative about how that city came to be, why it's there, who lives there now, what the political structure is, what what are the functions that every city needs, you know, food and water, shelter, people to maintain those things. It needs uh, a government. It needs guards and places of worship. It needs workers that work in all of the the places. That experience of creating a city, and it's really just a bunch of scribbles on a piece of paper, but but creating that city in my mind meant that I had to go through the arc of society and think through everything that happens in society when you think through it all, at least for me as a DM, it gets me really engaged with the game and it gets me really connected with the characters in the world so that when the game happens, I can speak with authority about what's going on in that particular location. I'm worried that running a pre-written campaign, I won't be as engaged, I won't be as connected to the world. Doing that for a city is exciting, it's, it's fun. For all the reasons that you mentioned, for all the reasons that you mentioned, it's also incredibly intimidating. Yeah, it, it can you know, be. You can get in there in 20 minutes and you're like, oh, I can't do this. Just <laughs> walk away from it, right? You don't have to flush out every part of a town. Um, every activate. You know, a little you, black box can just be a little black box right. for now. And then when you, when somebody wants to investigate that, then you, you can figure out what that means, what that is in, in the moment. Maps can inspire, I think, both sides of the DM screen, right? Like... Going back to the idea of a shared hallucination, <laughs> what's more unpredictable or fluid than somebody's imagination, right? I mean, um, and to be able to galvanize that at a table, so six people are, are imagining the same thing, uh, it's pretty special. I mean, it's it's pretty powerful. It's not easy to do, and yet sometimes it's not that difficult to do either. You yeah, know, you do that. I've been thinking about it. I'm surprised at how easy it seems. 
Now, I could be delusional as a DM, and I could be walking into the room saying X, having everybody perceive it as Y, and I just keep going, assuming X, and people have to change their their assumptions after the fact. I don't know. That that probably happens all the time. Coming back to those, filling in those blanks, those gaps, it's important to leave those there so people can fill them in with their own imagination, but if what you imagine what I imagine is, is far enough apart, it can introduce a difficulty or a problem. Yeah. Or just a misunderstanding that where you think it's going to happen that isn't, you know? Um, it's one thing that I have a problem with with a pre-written adventure is that when I put something together and I imagine it in my head and I describe it to you, I know what I'm describing and so then you can ask me questions about it and because I've already built it out in my head, yeah. I can just on the fly immediately answer your questions. I have had something occur multiple times when a pre-done adventure where it has boxed flavor text and I'll just read it out. But I'm one of those people I can't take notes and listen at the same right. time. I can read and imagine something. Oh, okay. But I can't read and speak it out loud. Right. And, and think about the cadence of my voice. You know, what tone am I using? Am I enunciating clearly? Are you paying attention? Am I making eye contact so that I'm engaging you while right. I tell you this? I can do all of that and read it off to you. But then I'm not imagining it. And so right. then you'll stop and say, well, what about this? And like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> you just described this to me. There's a, a red, whatever, curtain in a room. You just described it to me. I want to say something behind it. I don't remember describing a red curtain. 20 seconds ago, those words came out of my mouth. <laughs> I have no recollection of it. I haven't built that out in my head, so I can't answer those questions. Right? Hey, two potential problems. One is you have a pre-written campaign and you read something out, and something's inconsistent mm -hmm. in what you read versus something else that's happened in the game. Or... You're making stuff up with the intent of kind of adding some flavor, even though it's pre-written, and then you read something that completely contradicts yep. your imagination. Or uh, a, a tweak that you did to the story, right? Uh, mm. Or something that just happens. Like, let's say you've got uh, okay, now I'm a scared. resolution to uh, a story. Let's say it's an adventure module, yeah. right? Uh, and somebody comes out, let's say the king comes, and you're just reading, and presents you all with medals and gives you a reward. And you read the whole thing. And you're like, uh, I thought the king was assassinated, like, last game. Like, <laughs> fuck. That didn't happen. I didn't think about it. And I just blindly read you some text. Right. Uh, I'm on autopilot. And I cheated you of your experience because I wasn't paying attention to what I was reading. Right. You know? You want to be able to make changes. But depending on how that adventure is, is written out, it may not accommodate those changes. And you want to be aware of that. And you may need to do some, you know, pre... Um, vetting of your content to make sure it's still in line with your changes, especially if you have drastic changes. I feel like I'm going to have to read through this module like three or four times all the way through before I'm comfortable making changes. And I may not. I may just run it clean. What I've done that has worked for me, and everybody does it differently, but is I will read through that content beforehand. And I'm not looking to memorize it because I'm not going to use it. Oh. I'm reading through it to build it in my head oh. and then reconcile that with the world if made it changes and then what I end up with in my head I will just reference that when I describe something right so I've built something out from the template in that flavor text apply any changes that may be appropriate to it or relevant kind of cement that into my understanding of the way this dungeon works or the way this town works or the way this NPC should be behaving 
and then go off of that. Right. Instead of going off what's written there. Otherwise, it, you're, you're, you could be in the middle of the game looking at your notes and be like, that is not what I have in my head. Mm-hmm. Or if you if it's completely mechanical to you. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of times what you're trying to do is you're trying to establish relationships between different NPCs, different events, motive, things like that. And if you just go exactly what's written there and you're trying to memorize an entire starter adventure, which could be huge, you may not make those connections in your own head. You may be right. describing connections that your players make that you're oblivious to because you're, just, you're not even listening to your own content, right? And so they're like, oh, well, that means this. You're like, does? Why is that? I, I've, I've been there where I've had players explain to me the ramifications of what I just read completely lost on me because I was just going through the motions. I'm like, oh, shit, is that really what that means? Which is... Um, which loses all credibility for your players. It's, it becomes, right. You can't do it without it being blatantly obvious. You didn't know what the fuck you were talking about. <laughs> At least for me, like it was obvious I didn't know what I was talking about. My players knew more about the plot than I did at that point. And I was no longer running the game. I no longer but had the credibility to run the game. It's okay for your players to be... I don't know. I think it's okay for your players to be a step ahead of you. But well, it's not. It's not the problem isn't being of. a step ahead of you. It's you do a lot of work to get your players engaged. And if they get the idea that you're not engaged... Oh, there you go. You, you lose that balance. Yeah. And then how are they going to believe a story or a world that you're trying to immerse them in? If you don't believe it, right? It's like somebody trying to sell you something, and it's obvious they don't believe what they're trying to sell you. If somebody comes up to you and they're like, hey, do you have time to talk about uh, uh, saving the rainforest? Like, no, you're already three, four steps past them, right? Like, they have yeah. no interest in being there. You have no interest in talking to them. Okay. I don't know how we talk about this so much. <laughs> it astonishes me. So, I think the, the, the reason we, we talk forever is because of the tangents part of the Dungeons and Tangents. But also because we enjoy it. Well, that's fair. Back yeah. to that point of it's something that, I don't want to say we believe in because that's a little like a little cultish, but like, <laughs> um, it's something that we enjoy. We honestly enjoy it. We appreciate the value of the game. If we were somebody who just wanted to sell books in a store, you know, we wouldn't be able to do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we wouldn't have that passion for it. We wouldn't enjoy it. And I think it would become very obvious. The fact that we're doing this podcast, I don't know that anybody actually watches this. Right. right. Uh, other it's, people that we say, hey, watch this, you know, yeah. and force uh, video links <laughs> down the, the chat window. Like, listen, watch this. <laughs> um, but we still do it. We enjoy it. You know, we spend a couple of hours on it. Yeah, um, and then I spent a couple put, hours You put editing. a lot of work into it. I, I shouldn't even be talking. Like, I, I just show up and, and and just kind of ramble on. Eric puts a bunch of work into this. You should, um, you should put like an extra hour every week into like marketing it. How do, I don't know how marketing it's, it's, works. It's probably better that I don't. I'm not, probably do more harm than good. Um, there's, no, but, there's no bad press. <laughs> you know, it just goes back to that point of when you when you are really engaged in something that shows, and when you're not. And you can't hide that well. It also shows, and it has a very detrimental effect. Both in running a podcast and running a game. Right. <laughs> um, which I think is a big part of why we can talk about it so much. It's because yeah. we enjoy it. And we do it for us. We don't do it for any other motivation. Right? Yeah. We do it because we enjoy doing it. Uh, so, as always, if you're listening to this, you're insane, and you should subscribe because your insanity needs... More fodder. There you go. Sure.
if you uh, are our troll, uh, please comment. If you're not our troll... If you're uh, watching, please comment. Yes. And just let us know. If you're Chris Angel, I'm very sorry. Uh, if you're Chris Rutledge, I'm sorry <laughs> that you're Chris Rutledge. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> <Hi>, Chris. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> oh, right. And uh, next episode will almost certainly be minis uh, that we have. Yes, most probably. Much like dice, I love minis. Uh, I think they're great and uh, probably have an unhealthy obsession <laughs> with them. So I'm, I know looking, I I'm looking forward to that <clears throat> quite a bit. I have more than I've ever used. I have a bunch I probably will never use and I knew that when I when I got them but it was like how could I not have uh, a samurai mouse? If you're going to make a mini of a samurai mouse I'm going to buy that mini every time. Next episode, we get deep into the world of miniatures, finding them, painting them, and using them in game. If you enjoy Dungeons & Tangents, please let us know by rating us on iTunes. You can also let us know by finding us on Twitter at Dungeon underscore Tangent and sending us a funny picture. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. 